Well, I join with Greg in welcoming you. I know you've had a busy day, and I know some of you could be tired. Some of you were about your education, others occupation, some recreation. Whatever you did today, I am happy that you have taken into your schedule to come and be with us tonight. I've enjoyed my conversation with a few people as you were coming in tonight, and we were talking, and some were already asking several questions. One of my degrees was in religious studies, and so I did a full semester just on Islam. So it's impossible for me in two sessions to cover every facet if we wanted to talk about the five pillars of faith, if we wanted to talk about the attitude and the understanding of angels, if we wanted to talk about Jesus as uh, a prophet equal with Moses and Abraham but not equal with Muhammad. I can't cover all of that. But I'm happy that I was able to cover what little material we did last night and happy to get into this tonight. Now, tonight I'm going to say some things that I wish that I didn't have to say. But in order to be honest and to be fair and to be historical, then we're going to have to discuss some things tonight that might not be so appealing to many of us. And you can see with the photograph that I've used here when I'm talking about uh, Islam tonight, we're going to look at uh, the role of women in the world and uh, the way that some, and let me preface, not all Muslim men are going to believe the same thing. But we're going to talk about this behind the veil. And so talking about uh, some of the quotes that come out of the Quran. And so if we begin here with this quote, do not force your slave girls into prostitution in order that you may enrich yourselves. As I said, I'm going to have to say some things tonight that I wish that I didn't have to say. But when we start looking at some of the quotes and we look at the lifestyle of some of the men, we can see, sadly, that sex plays a very big part in their attitude. And so when this is, you know, why would, why would the Quran deal with this statement? Why is this written? Now, it goes on to say, if, now there's that question, if, that real emphasis there, See, do not force your, your slave girls to become prostitutes if they don't want to become a prostitute. Now, what's that supposed to tell me? If they agree to it, uh, then you can do it. Because it says, if they, meaning the slave girls, wish to preserve their chastity. So if this young girl is wanting to remain a virgin, let her remain a virgin. But if she has no qualms about it, then you can say, you are my slave girl. You are my property. I own you. And therefore, you can turn her into a prostitute. Now, Muhammad continued by saying, if anyone, referring here to the slave owner, if anyone compels them, you force them to give up their purity, then these slave girls that you have taken, God will be forgiving and will be merciful to them. So the girl had first said no, but you tried to talk her into it. She's violating her conscience. She doesn't want to become a prostitute. But if, to satisfy a Muslim man, she does that, then the Quran says that God will be merciful to her. Now, last night, I told a little bit about the history of Muhammad. 
is that he was married when he was 25 years old. He married a 40-year-old widow lady that was wealthy. His uncle had recommended that he do that uh, just for the money. Uh, I don't think this was a, a marriage for love. This was a marriage for money. Now, after Mohammed was kicked out of Mecca that we talked about last night, when he left Mecca, he went to Medina. And so when he was kicked out of Mecca, one of his admirers brought him his six-year-old daughter and said, I'm giving you my six-year-old daughter for you to marry her. Now, if we study the history of that idea, I then went to Webster's Dictionary and looked up this word, pedophile or pedophilia, and it says a sexual perversion in which children are the preferred sexual object. Now, what if a man in Columbia, Tennessee, says, I want favors from a six-year-old girl, an eight-year-old girl, a ten-year-old girl, a twelve-year-old girl? Then he would be arrested as a pedophile, right? Now, we look at what tradition tells us that Muhammad did not consummate the marriage with this new wife that he took until she was nine years old. Wouldn't we still call him a pedophile? He then began adding wife after wife, adding to himself a harem, believing that he was receiving permission from Allah and that he was receiving God's blessings, that he could do that. He did not believe that all of the Muslim men could do what he could do. But he was able to build a large harem. Now, those that are here tonight and that you have read the Bible, uh, some of you are familiar with some of the Old Testament stories where that there were some men in the Old Testament that had multiple wives, but that did not please God. God's original plan was one man, one woman. Now, let me repeat that. God's plan was one man, one woman. The book of Genesis does not begin with Adam and Steve. It was Adam and Eve, not two men. Not one man and several women. It was one man, one woman. Now, when we get to the New Testament, we see the writings of Paul, and he made it very clear. Don't you know that from the beginning, and during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus will also, he would take them back to the beginning, that God's plan was one man and one woman. Now, what about Mohammed's polygamy? He defended himself. Here's what he said, God let me do it and revealed it to me through Gabriel. That's the angel that we talked about last night. He said, God allowed me, God revealed it to me through the angel Gabriel. And see, as long as Muhammad is writing the book, even though he claims that he was just doing the handwriting, that Gabriel the angel was the one that was dictating it. But you see, once it's stuck in the book, then most of the Muslims are going to read that and then accept that. Now note the endorsement for Muhammad. Prophet, in other words, imagine a conversation. God's going to be talking to Muhammad. 
May I have your attention, Muhammad? Prophet, we have made lawful for you the wives to whom you have granted dowries and the slave girls whom God has given to you as booty. You see, when you go into a country to do battle, you're supposed to bring home a reward. Mohammed brought home several women. That was his booty. And so this is saying that God told me I could do that. This privilege is yours alone. This is God talking now to Mohammed. This is your privilege and yours alone being granted to no other believer. We grant you this privilege so that none may blame you. You may take to your bed any of them that you please. This is a religion that allows and promotes concubines. Again, reading from the Quran, save with their wives and slave girls, for these are lawful for them. Muhammad advised the men, and again a quote from the Quran, chapter 4, verse 3, as we would use uh, the language, is that he advised men who were tempted to marry, go ahead and get married. Two wives, three wives, four wives. He never used the number one. See, notice when he said that two is the minimum number that he started with. Now, a Muslim man, even today in our modern world, a Muslim man can have four wives, but he can have as many slave girls as he wants. There is no limit to the women that can be his. Now contrast that to what the Bible says. In the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, it says marriage is honorable among all. The bed is undefiled. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. Sex is not a four-letter word. There's just three letters, S-E-X. It's not, a, it's not a bad word. It's not an ugly word. Sex is a privilege that God gives to man and woman to be enjoyed in marriage. Now, let me use this example. I grew up as a farm boy in Kentucky. I can remember every spring when we were out there plowing and disking. My father would stand out there in the middle of the field and we would say, all right, the corn will go over here, the soybeans will go over here, the wheat will go over here. And I remember many times my dad would pick up a handful of dirt. I never knew why he would smell it. But he would stick up, uh, take that handful of dirt and he would smell it. He would crumble it between his fingers like that. And so many times I would hear him say, isn't that beautiful? Dirt? Beautiful? But now what if my dad had taken that same handful of dirt and gone into the kitchen where my mom was preparing our lunch and he threw it in the middle of the dining room table? Wouldn't be pretty in there, would it? You see, the dirt out in the field where it's supposed to be, he could say it's pretty. It would be dirt on the kitchen table. May I say the same is true with sex. In marriage... It's beautiful. That's where it belongs. The bed is undefiled. But notice this, the fornicator and the adulterer, God will judge. God's plan is one man, one woman. 
Now, ISIS has said that their goal is to fly the ISIS flag over the White House of America. The Islamic State worldwide, in some of the countries where I have been, they already have Sharia law. Now, like when I was in Kuwait, you have two types of police officers. Last night, we had some of the, I believe, some of the city police. We've got some of the sheriff department here tonight. Oh, and they were here last night. Now, see, they're here to take care of the legal matters according to the laws of the city or the laws of the county. You know, they're going to arrest the drunk driver. They're going to take care of somebody that's trying to steal or, and that kind of thing. But Sharia law is whether or not you are abiding by the law of the Koran. Now, when I was in Kuwait, you would have at the city park, you would have the Sharia cops walking through the park to see if they could catch a boy and a girl holding hands. To see if they could catch a girl that had removed the veil from off of her face. And then she goes to jail. Now, everywhere that Sharia law becomes the law, that supersedes the national law, the city law. So if you can enact Sharia law, then every man can have his four wives. Even though the law of Tennessee might condemn polygamy, the Sharia law can say you can have your four wives and then you can have as many slaves as you want. Now, many people in America, when we talk about slavery, we turn it into a black and white issue. We turn it into another civil war. We turn it into the Confederacy. That's just a little bit of history. You see, slavery occurred with both men and women. And during Mohammed's life, there was massive slave trading. There were young girls that were kidnapped. There were men and women that were taken as booty as a result of a battle in some location. And so this slave trading, they, they actually established routes for where that you go in and out with your slaves for trading. And this was very active uh, in northern Africa as Muslims were watching when the, the caravans were coming, going from one city to the other. And then you go out and you rob them. And one of the things that you take, you take all of their, their wealth, you sometimes keep some of their camels, but you take their wives and you take their daughters and you turn them into slaves. Now, if you choose to study some world history, you will see that in 1965, that was the year I graduated from high school, Saudi Arabia then declared slavery illegal in Saudi Arabia. It was not until 1991 that slavery was considered illegal in the Sudan. But today, if you deal with several of the places in northern Africa, slavery is still an accepted way of life. And so we can see how that many of the women are just simply made property. 
Now, some of you are familiar with the organization called NOW, National Organization for Women. One of the things that I am still baffled about, how have the feminists and how has the NOW organization, how have they allowed the media to praise and to honor Islam and how have we gotten so involved with some of the, the money that is going from our tax dollar to support some of the Islamic programs when that the woman is so demoralized? How come that some of these organizations that are supposed to be supporting the women, how come they're not speaking out? How come that they're not in outrage? And how come they're allowing the media's allegiance to Muslims? And like we talked about last night, even here in your county, where that in the elementary school, they're spending four to five weeks studying Islam, but these schools would not dare allow you to study Christianity. How come that you cannot say a prayer in the public school, but you can study the five pillars of Islam and learn their prayers? You see, we've got something quite mixed up. Now, how did Mohammed get to this point regarding women? And how has it persisted? And what do some of the men believe today? Now, when Mohammed was still alive and when that he was assisting in robbing the caravans, he made promises of women and girls to the men that would fight for him. You become a soldier and I will reward you. You become a soldier, I will get you women. I will help you fulfill some of your desires. And this resulted in many young men, hey, sign me up, I'll be a soldier if you're going to bring me four women. And that's how that many of them were converted. Now, some of the men began to complain. Well, what's going to happen? You're promising me if I'll be a soldier that I'll get some of these women. But now, what's going to happen if I then go into the battle and I get killed? Then I won't get my women. Oh, okay. Let's create a new doctrine then. And that's when Mohammed came up with the idea that you die fighting for him and then in heaven, you'll get a bunch of virgins there. Do you see what is happening? He has turned heaven into a house of prostitution. He has promised these young soldiers, put on this vest, become a suicide bomber. You go out here and you try to kill as many people as you can, taking your own life in the process. But you see, but then in heaven, Allah is going to reward you with all of these women. Loyal Muslim men who paid the price of martyrdom is going to find a whole host of angels waiting for him in heaven. And here is the word that they use for that, is that uh, when that, that it's, it's talking about that their host of virgins and these virgins would forever satisfy their desires and their cravings. Now, how do you get around an obvious problem? The Koran comes up with a fix for you. 
It says, as a rare creation. Talking about these girls now in heaven. As a rare creation, we have made them ever virgins. And so, again, the attitude that they have. There were many that would have been called pagans from many different countries, from many different backgrounds, from many different religions, that many pagans converted to Islam on the promise of sexual fulfillment. As a result of that, Muslim men did not want their own wives and their own daughters to become objects of such an increased sexual desire. While you're trying to encourage this in one group of Muslim men, Oh, well, I can have all the women that I want. But now he gets married. He has daughters. He doesn't want somebody to touch his daughter. So now we've got a problem. You see, I'm supposed to fulfill all my physical desires, and so I can take the other women, I can take somebody else's daughters, but now I don't want anybody to touch my daughter. So they decided to change again. Number one, you can hide them. Just lock them in the house. Don't ever let them go outside. Stick them down in the basement. Go hide them in a cave somewhere. Don't let any man ever see your beautiful daughter because men are such sexual perverts that if they ever see your daughter, they're going to want her. And so that was the attitude of some of them. Hide your daughters. And then someone came up with the idea, well, what if we cover them so that you don't know whether they're pretty or ugly? We'll just completely cover them. All we're going to allow you to see is their eyes. And in some of the countries, you can't see the eyes. You know, you have two different types of veils. Uh, the one that I had in the very beginning, all parts, all, the whole body was covered except the eyes. But now in some of the countries is that then they have that veil where only the eyes are exposed, and then they have a thin black veil that covers that. So you don't, you don't even see whether she's got brown eyes, green eyes, or blue eyes. You don't get to see any of her beauty. So these concerns were then made law by Muhammad. Once that the men came to their rules, then it was stuck into the Quran. Now see, here's an example of one that, uh, the veil on top of the veil. So here is another quote from the Quran. O Prophet, say to your wives and to your daughters and the women of the faithful to draw their outer garments close around themselves. That is better that they will be recognized and not annoyed. And God is forever forgiving and gentle. You women are just going to become an object. Say to the faithful women, don't ever look eye to eye to the woman, to the man. Lower your gaze. Do not hold your head high. Do not look at someone during conversation. Say to the faithful women to lower their gazes and to guard their private parts and not to display their beauty except what is apparent of it and to extend their head coverings to cover from the top of their head then below their bosoms. Now, does this sound like equality? The Koran requires women to remain veiled and to remain strictly segregated from male society. 
Hey, it's time to eat. All you men, come on in. Let's eat. You women, you go sit out under the tree out there. We segregate the men and the women. A woman is to be seen as Satan if there has been temptation by the man. You see, rather than teaching the man, you need to control your thoughts. Rather than teaching the man what Jesus said, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Muslims are taught, if this man is lusting after that woman, it's the woman's fault. Maybe she shouldn't be so pretty. Maybe he should have not seen her eyes. And so she is referred to as the devil because she made the man be tempted. One of the traditions of Muhammad is that the majority of people that are going to hell are going to be women. You see, the men are having these desires, but it's the woman's fault. She's the devil. And so most of the people going to hell, according to Muhammad, are going to be women. This next chart, I'm not going to go into detail publicly. But you see, they have come up with the practice of a circumcision for females also. And that this is a bloody surgery that is done to prevent women from feeling any pleasure. This is affirmed not in the Quran, but in the quotes that was later put into a second book, which were the quotes of Muhammad. And that Muhammad himself said, that the sexual relationship is to be for the enjoyment of the man and the woman should never feel any enjoyment. And so there is a female circumcision. This is also one of the first practices when that Sharia law goes into effect. If you go into a country and they don't have Sharia law, but if the Muslims can take over And then to enact Sharia law, the first requirement, bring all of your women in for the circumcision. And that's the first part. Muslims are not assured of redemption. In fact, you can do everything that you think the Koran tells you to do. That you can do everything that you think that Allah would want you to do, but then Allah can change His mind even at the last minute when that you think just before your death, you think you're going to go to heaven, and Allah can say, but I've changed my mind, you're not going to get to. There's only one exception. There is one guarantee that Allah will not change His mind if you want to become a suicide bomber, if you want to do something to bring down an airplane and kill a bunch of people, if you want to set off some kind of a bomb, if you want to go into some building and start shooting a bunch of people knowing that the policemen are probably going to shoot you, but you're guaranteed you'll go to heaven if you do that. And ladies and gentlemen, they start training the young boys when they're six years old. At six years old, they make them watch some of these movies. 
Now, I don't know how many of you ever seen the movie The Kingdom. I'm not recommending that all of you go see it, but if you're wanting to study Islam, I mean, what it is, this is the true story. What it is, it's a bunch of American military that's over in one of the Muslim countries, and during their recreational time, they go out and they play uh, soccer and they play baseball. And this movie is showing the father up on the roof of a building with his little son. And he's grabbing the kid by the, by the hair and he said, you watch them play that game because he knows what's getting ready to happen. You watch them play that game and he would not allow that child to turn his head away. And then a bunch of jeeps start coming in and the Muslim men jump out and they kill all of our military men. And he's forcing that child to watch that. Now that was in real life. But they have movie after movie where they are starting the children with that. And to me, any age is sad when you have that kind of a lust for killing but especially when that you're training somebody six years old, eight years old, ten years old. You see, I guess as Americans, we just think different than the rest of the world. That's why so many of our soldiers got killed in Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan. I talked to some soldiers one time and they said they were going down the highway and they saw a pregnant woman on the highway. And they thought they would stop to see if she needed assistance, if she needed a bottle of water, if there's some way they could help her. And you see, when that truck and that Jeep stopped, she reached under that black dress and she pulled the button. She was a suicide bomber. She killed herself and she killed those American soldiers. Children are trained to do that. Women are trained to do that because, see, that's the only guarantee that you can go to heaven. Now, I mentioned last night, mentioned again already tonight, about the five pillars of faith. I don't have time to, to go into detail. That's another full lecture. Uh, but you see, the five pillars rest on the foundation down here of jihad. Now, what is jihad? That's the holy war. That's go and kill the devils. Now, who are the devils? Well, we're all sitting here tonight. You see, the devil is anyone that is not a Muslim. And so, jihad is, is that you go and you, if you cannot convert, now you, you first are given the opportunity, do you want to convert? But if you will not convert, then we kill you. And so the five pillars rest on this whole idea of jihad. That's the only way you have the assurance of going to heaven in Islam. But what about for the Christian? In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, it says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know. You see, if I were to ask you tonight, if you're a Christian, are you going to go to heaven? So many of you say, well, I want to. So many would say, well, I hope I get to. I want you to have confidence 
God gave you a brain and God gave you a book. Have you ever read that book? You see, the Bible is the number one best-selling book in America. It is the least read book. Even many Christians, they may have two or three Bibles in their home, but they've never read it. They may have been going to church for the last ten years. Some of them think an epistle is the wife of an apostle. They don't know the books of the Bible. They have trouble finding Leviticus. They don't know the difference in 1 Chronicles and 1 Corinthians. Now that's sad. That's not as it ought to be. You are to read the Bible and to know what God wants, and then you ought to know whether or not you have done what God wants you to do. It's that simple. I mean, when my wife gives me a grocery list, because you see, I learned a long time ago that my forgetter works a lot more than my rememberer does. Now, if she just wants two things, I can remember that. But if she wants four things, uh-uh, you better write that down, honey. Because when I get to the grocery store, I'm going to get ice cream, and that might not be on your list. So write it down. See, so I can go down the aisle, and I say, okay, she said we needed milk, we needed eggs, we needed sugar, we needed... You know, so I can I can check it off. Here's what she said. Okay, I put that in the card. I can check it off. I can look at the Bible and I can learn what God wants. And I say, okay, uh, I surrender myself. All to Thee, I surrender. I can know whether or not I am doing what God wants me to do. And so I can know that I have eternal life. And John goes on to say, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, the jihad, the holy war, going out and killing people, the suicide bombing, this is the only form of warfare that is supposed to be permissible under Islamic law. And it can consist, in their minds, I'm doing what Allah wants me to do. It can be a war against the unbeliever. It can be the Boston Marathon. It can be at some sports event. It can be those six churches that they bombed in Indonesia and killed several of the worshipers. These are unbelievers, and so Allah approves of me killing all of them that I can. It can be an apostate. This guy used to be a faithful, devout Muslim, but now he's left us. He needs to die. Allah would want me to kill him. And so, there are several different reasons. Now, make no doubts about it. And I stuck this chart up with my lesson last night. While the media claims that Islam is a peaceful religion, and I've heard our president say that in about three of his lectures, that Islam is a peaceful religion. Make no doubt about it. Their, their goal is to control the world. As I've already given the quote, ISIS has said their goal is to fly that black and white flag above the White House. Slowly they want to take one country and then another country and then another country. The Quran says, He it is who sent His messenger that He may cause it, meaning Islam, if you consider the whole chapter, 
that He may cause it to prevail against and over all religions. Now that's the truth of what they teach. So when we look at blood, we have to look at it from two perspectives. The Muslim looks at blood from how many people they can kill in jihad. The Christian looks at blood knowing that Christ died on the cross to make it possible that we could be saved. I'm not going to go to heaven because of how wonderful I am. I'll go to heaven because of how wonderful Jesus was. And that He died so that I can live. That's the difference between these two religions. Both religions, Islam and Christianity, both deal with blood. But there's a big difference in the blood of jihad and the blood of Jesus Christ. Christianity began in the city of Jerusalem back in the first century on the day of Pentecost. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. Christianity began and spread through evangelism. Islam began and spread through violence. You try to take over another country. You kill a few more people. We'll conquer. We'll spread. Salvation for the Christian is provided to those who obey the gospel, according to Hebrews chapter 5. Islam guarantees paradise only to those martyrs who fight for their cause. And there is where it's quoted from the Quran. Christianity is a religion of the grace of God. I don't care how many good things we try to do. We don't earn our way to heaven. It's a gift from God. Christianity is a religion of grace. Islam is a religion of work. The works of Allah. Now this warring factor is a contract between Allah and Muslims. Allah has demanded this. Muslims say, I surrender. I will do that to you. Here is a quote. Let those fight in the cause of Allah who sell the life of this world for the hereafter. To him who fighteth in the cause of Allah, whether he is slain or gets victory, soon shall we give him a reward of great value. And there are several quotes like that. I don't have time to go into all of it. But 60%, according to a computer, I haven't tried to count them all, but 60% of the verses in the Quran talk about the jihad, talk about the holy war, talk about the blood, talk about killing. Christianity was founded on the blood of Jesus. Islam was founded on the blood of jihad. That's quite a difference. If we go back to the very beginning, last night we talked about uh, Muhammad and how that he was driven out of one town. He goes then from Mecca to Medina. And then later then there were wars. And this was how that, that Islam spread. And so we deal with those raids and we deal with Muhammad personally leading 26 different battles. By the time that he got then out of Mecca, got over to Medina, the jihad was the force by which that Islam spread. Don't you think there would be a lot of people that if they had a big knife up against their throat and they could feel the metal and that they were said, now, are you ready to convert? Don't you think that some, some would say yes? Now, what about you? Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 says, Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. 
If you want to study that in the Greek language, it says, be faithful even if this means your death. Now, it's only by the grace of God that I'm standing here tonight because I had spent quite a bit of time in Nairobi, Kenya. And if my schedule had been about six days different, I might have been one of those guys that you saw on television. Because, you see, the Muslims shut down the large tourist shopping mall. They closed every exit. Every person was trapped inside the mall, and they would bring you one at a time to the door, can you quote the Islamic prayer in Arabic? If you can, we'll open the door, you're allowed to go outside. If not, line up against the wall. Now, they didn't know what was going to happen when they were told to line up against the wall. But after they had gone through every store in that mall, they had visited every restroom, they were confident they had emptied the mall, there were 68 people standing against that wall. And the soldiers took machine guns and blew them all down. It had been six days different. I might have been one of those guys. But I'm not going to allow the devil to cause me to live in fear. I'm not going to go out flirting with somebody trying to kill me. But I'm not afraid to die. But when that verse says, be faithful even if it means your death, what if someone sticks a pistol up in front of your face and says, I'm going to ask you one question. If you say yes, I'm going to pull the trigger. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And then you say yes, and they pull the trigger. You see, this is how Islam grew during these days of Muhammad. And we look in 678 that Jerusalem surrendered. By 711, Islam was controlling most of North America. You can see, see in the blue area, this was 90% Muslim. In the green area, 50 to 90%. Constantine fell in 753, and Islam moved then into southern Europe. Islam was finally stopped in the 17th century. There was a lot of bloodshed. You remember the Crusades and a lot of other things. And so when we look at world history, we can see how it spread, how some countries tried to stop it, but now we see at the end of the 20th century, and now thus far into the 21st century, we can see that there is a resurgence of it, and we can see how that now Islam is getting more and more people involved and the question is, how are they doing this? I just, a week ago Sunday, I was preaching right outside of, of Phoenix, Arizona, in the little town of Gilbert. And you see, Phoenix has had a couple of the men that left Phoenix to join ISIS. And so why is it that so many Americans, and why is it that so many Europeans... Why is it that so many young college girls are saying, I'll join ISIS, I'll become one of their prostitutes? 
And so we see this resurgence. Now, if you start with a fourth grade student in Tennessee, and you try for four or five weeks to indoctrinate them in Islam, and the books are going to tell you what a peaceful, sweet religion it is, and how wonderful it is to submit to follow Allah, then you can understand why that some of them get so confused then by the time that they're in their high school years and in their college years. Now contrast that with evangelism. Evangelism is the lifeblood of Christianity. Jesus said, go into all the world. And what are you supposed to do when you go into all the world? Teach the gospel. Because Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 says the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. Evangelism is proclaiming the good news of Christ. Christianity was prophesied in the Old Testament, going all the way back to the very first prophecy of Jesus in Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 15. We look at what the prophets said, especially looking at Isaiah 53, when it says that he would die for my sins. You look then at uh, the comfort that we can receive from the Psalms, but we look at the Messianic portion here. Islam simply does not understand Judaism or Christianity. They don't understand the Christian's patience in seeking to overcome evil with love. You see, ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to tell you tonight, don't grab a pistol and go out and see how many Muslims you can kill. Grab your Bible and go see how many Muslims you can convert. Show them your love. Let them see the love of Jesus in your life. I'm now 68 years old. I've been trying to teach the Bible for 48 years. And over the years is that we have helped in converting some people that used to be atheists. Some, one man was a murderer. He had been a fugitive for five years. As soon as he was baptized into Christ, he said, now take me and turn me over to the police department. One couple... In Bowling Green, where I live, one, two young boys were living together as homosexual lovers. They were converted. They repented of their sin. You see, the government might change some of their rules, but the government is not going to change God's rules. Is that, you see, sin has to be repented of. One of my very dear friends today, the wife and I have been friends with her for many, many years, she ran away from home when she was a teenager. For about six years, her parents did not know whether she was alive or dead. There was no contact. Can you imagine, as a mother, can you imagine going to bed at night not knowing where your daughter is? Not knowing whether or not she's still alive? She got on the bad drugs, expensive drugs. Now, in order to afford the drugs, she turned herself into a prostitute. Sleeping with hundreds of men, she, she said there's no way to count. She got pregnant by one of them. She didn't want the baby, so she went to New York to have an abortion. Now let me ask you men. If you were in New York City 
Here's a woman that's been strung out on drugs. Here's a woman that's been for years as a prostitute. Here's a woman that just murdered her unborn baby. And she approaches you on the sidewalk and she says, Hey, buddy, would you like a friend for tonight? Is the first thing that would pop in your mind, this girl needs Jesus. I'm happy to tell you that she's today a faithful follower of Jesus. Married to a gospel preacher friend of mine, and the Lord has blessed him with four children. I don't care what the sin is. The blood of Jesus can wash it away. But you're going to have to repent of it. You're going to have to want to come out of it. You can't stay in that sin. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world. Teach people. Baptize these people. And then keep teaching them. You see, we don't want to leave them at the river or leave them at the baptistry dripping wet and never teach them anything else. You go and you teach them, you baptize them, and then you continue to teach them. Islam has no redeemer. Islam has no mediator. Islam has no guarantee of anyone that is going to forgive you of anything. So when we contrast God versus Allah, we see that God is a God of love. We can have a personal relationship with Him, and He gives us a means of redemption. He's involved. Whereas Allah can change His mind at any moment that He wants to. Maybe the most familiar verse in the New Testament, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. So what should we do? Simply put, we must teach the truth. That's what the Bible said. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. We need to learn to use quotes, like I've tried to do tonight, from Muhammad's book. Use quotes to undermine the Muslim confidence in Muhammad and in his writings. Especially you women, you need to get outraged by the view that Muhammad and the Quran gives about you. We need to share this information. Share it first with our family. Share it with our friends, with our neighbors, with our co-workers. And it's time that we held our elected officials accountable to know about this religion and the dangers of this belief. I join Greg in saying, we're not here to get involved in politics. But I do believe that Christians need to let their elected officials know what their religion is and what they stand for. Now, last night, I talked about Ramadan, the month of fasting. It just ended last week. And the Empire State Building in New York lit up the sky with a green light to celebrate Ramadan. Within just a stone's throw of ground zero, we know what the Islamic terrorists did in New York City. Now, I didn't have time to research it today, but I was told that one of the buildings in Washington, D.C., either the Lincoln Memorial or Washington or something, Jefferson, I don't know which one, but I was also told it lit up green. Now, why is it that we can do something like this in public buildings to celebrate a festival of Islam 
but we can't have the Ten Commandments in front of the courthouse. That our football team can't say a prayer. We must comprehend that their goal is to bring enough people to America that we can take over America and to make it a Muslim country. Every immigrant to our country has to take an oath and to swear to uphold the U.S. Constitution. In applying for U.S. citizenship, immigrants are asked by the government, are you willing to defend this country? The Koran demands Islamic control. The Koran says we will conquer this country and then we will put in Sharia law and that becomes law over civil authority. Our Constitution forbids murder. It forbids slavery. It forbids prostitution. Some of the things that are endorsed by the Koran. So you can see as a Christian... There's a big contrast as an American and what I believe that our Constitution shows, guaranteeing equal rights before the law for both sexes. According to the Koran, if we go to court, the word of one man is more powerful than the voice of two women. Does that sound fair? Can you imagine these two women saying, he raped me, and the man says, no, I didn't. And then the court says, okay, then we go with the man. You see, there's a contrast. Our pulpits must educate and edify members regarding this religion. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You don't go to heaven through Muhammad. You don't go to heaven through Islam. You don't go to heaven through Buddhism. You don't go to heaven through a lot of the other isms. Jesus is the only way. I hope that I've said something to challenge your thinking that will cause you to want to do some more reading, a little more research, and to help people see the evils of this religion and that we can help people to come out of it. Thank you for the kind way that you've listened.